Please be seated. I invite you to Acts chapter 4. On August the 23rd of this year, 20 Maoist extremists attacked a Hindu center in the Indian state of Orissa and murdered the eminent Hindu leader Swami Lakshmanda Saraswati and, along with him, four of his followers. Riots broke out across the district of Kandhamal, and soon a gory, sadistic reign of terror was unleashed by Hindus against Christians. Communist thugs murdered Saraswati. But as leader of the World Hindu Council, he was widely rumored to have masterminded a wave of persecution against Christians in Kandahar in December of 2007. And so when the rumor spread that Christians had sought to even the score, to Hindu ears, it was believable. And they went on a rampage across Arissa. They attacked Christian church buildings and homes and businesses. Even Christian schools and orphanages were ransacked, pelted with stones. Many were destroyed, as you see images here of some. In one village alone, the homes of 50 Christians were reportedly burned to the ground. Much of their property in some places was hauled out into the street and was burned before watching crowds. And beyond property damage, there were these atrocities were carried out, obviously, by mobs of Hindus who terrorized Christians, not only destroying their property, but coming after them with the flags of their Hindu extremist parties and coming then to deal with Christians in person. There are horrifying stories of rape, pillage, looting, torture, even burning some Christians alive after being misused in unspeakable ways. The reports are varied, but I think very solid report with specific names given. There are at least 58 Christians who have been murdered and over 70,000 driven from their homes. Many of them escaping to live in jungle areas, sometimes families being separated there as they run for their lives. 70,000 people displaced. Many of these have sought refuge in camps, and even some of these camps, once the people are arranged and there and finding refuge, are being attacked. In one, the water source was poisoned. The police have been hindered in helping to resist these attacks, and there are other reports at places where police have been found beating Christians. In no estimation have the authorities done enough to administer protection let alone to administer justice. And what are the responses to these horrors? What are people saying about them? Well, there are some who are happy. Uh, online, reading about some of these things, one person's note started with the words, he, 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 to these atrocities. Some mocking. This is what you get for telling others what to think. The Christians are getting their due. This is a good thing, some are saying. I think far widespread are those that are simply apathetic toward it. If 70,000 Americans were run out of their homes, pillaged, looted, businesses destroyed, orphanages overrun, there would be world furor over it. 
But here, much of this goes on unaddressed, unannounced, apathetic. It's just the way life is. But there's one response I'd like to hone in on here this morning in light of the text that is before us, and that is the response of shock. Why would anyone do this to people who have done them no harm? How is this possible in our world? Why would people do this? Well, for the followers of Jesus Christ, that is a response that we will never make. If you know Jesus Christ, you understand his teaching, you are a genuine follower of Christ, you will never be shocked, ever. Jesus prepared us for this. He said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. It doesn't sound as a hypothetical, does it? The persecution will come. John chapter 15, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. All these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. In the darkness against God, they will not respond well to Jesus or his followers. Luke chapter 21. We'll return, Lord willing, to this text, but think of it carefully. They will lay their hands on you, Jesus prophesies, and they will persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Our relatively peaceful culture is the aberration. Persecution is normal. Persecution for the followers of Jesus Christ is normal life. Imprisoned by the Nazis for his disobedience to them and his obedience to Christ, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. The Apostle Paul, in light of his own persecutions and sufferings, responding to them as he writes to Timothy, says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So it is no shock that as we consider the history of the early church that the first believers experienced persistent resistance to their witness of Jesus. In some respects, as we look at the first three chapters of Acts, we wonder about that. There might be the temptation to think that this message is going to roll on unresisted and conquer the world until Jesus comes back. Everything seems to be going so well. Chapter 2, the baptism of the Spirit and the thousands that respond and are baptized. We come to chapter 3. Remember Peter and John walking up to that temple area and healing that lame man and a crowd gathering, and though we don't know specific numbers, perhaps in the range of some 2,000 people, perhaps more, respond in faith and embrace the message. 
Peter's words are indeed fairly gracious and accommodating in chapter 3 because people just continue to respond. And he's saying, listen, turn to Christ. Respond to Jesus in faith. Repent of your sins. He is the risen Savior. He is the one who's healed this man. He's alive. Many respond. And you wonder, will this just continue to go on? This wall that is in the foreground, most in front of you. Remember the little entryway there down on the left, actually a huge entryway, but in the, in the scale here, a little passage into that wall, the beautiful gate somewhere on this wall, and then the roof that you see right in front of you in the foreground is the roof of Solomon's portico. It is under that portico that this gathering takes place. The man is healed. He grabs on to Peter and John. He's holding on. He's not going to let go. They go into the temple area. First time in his life, because as a layman, he wasn't allowed in there. Now he's jumping and leaping and praising God, and people gather and go, that's the guy. I know that's the guy. We've seen him. He was there, had been lame for over 40 years, had been there for a long time. People knew him, and Peter begins to preach, and people come to trust Christ as Savior. Looking across the vast temple courtyards and picture a person there is basically just a little dot in a sense, maybe a little bigger, but this is a massive area and this gives you a good picture. This is not Solomon's portico, that's the one that's in front of you, but it gives you a sense of the vast area there and the people gathering around and listening to Peter preach. And we pick up in chapter 4 and verse 1. As we find, first of all, in this section, them Peter and John imprisoned for this act, ironically but yet not ironically. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. These men are official Jewish rulers. We have the priests. The priests served in the ritual system of the temple area. They were highly influential people, but that's more where the emphasis was. They were very influential. They were powerful men, these priests. There was secondly the captain. This is a very powerful man. He's the second in charge. A member of the high priestly family, second in command only to the high priest. His job was to maintain order in the temple precincts. He controlled this place. He had at his disposal the Levites who acted as a temple police, and he had very great jurisprudence over the people that were there. The Sadducees, who are they? Now, we, we need to take a little sideline. The historians among us will love it. The rest of you hang in there, try to work through this. But we've got to get who these people are, because it really elevates to us the situation in which they find themselves. The Sadducees are there, verse 1. Their position politically, was that of the most powerful men in Israel. They were well-educated. They were wealthy elitists. They were aristocrats, most being priests from among whom the high priest was to be chosen. They were pro-Roman. They wanted to keep the peace the way it was because they were in power. As long as Rome was in power and respected them as the Sadducees, they were okay with Rome. They were, as one commentator puts it, control freaks. This area was theirs as far as they were concerned, and they were going to make sure that it remained theirs in their control. They were a minority. They were the wealthy, the upper echelon, the elite. This place was theirs. 
And this captain has authority to prosecute within these confines anyone that he chooses, however he chooses, outside of capital punishment. More on that in a moment. But think of this. You're preaching your heart out under this portico, and there's all kinds of masses of people gathering around, realizing that God has done a miracle, and you're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, and people are responding, and suddenly you're aware of somebody. You could just feel them coming. These powerful men in Israel, whose hands are still stained with the blood of the Jesus in whose name you are preaching. You know you're in trouble. They've entered the portico. Now, that's their position. Let's add to this the Sadducees' beliefs. And it gets even more problematic. They were materialists. There are no angels. There is no afterlife. There is no resurrection from the dead. They weren't all that interested in God's law. That was the job of others, and particularly those Pharisees who are constantly worrying about God's law. They were worried about God's temple. But they were materialists. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, and they believed they owned this place. But it goes further. They believed they were descendants of Zadok, Aaron's son, and the custodians of the Messianic age. Now, wait a minute. What do you mean the Messianic age? They believed that the Messianic age started with the Maccabean revolt in the intertestamental period. That sounds a little confusing. Just think of the time between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament. During that period of time, there was a revolt among certain militaristic zealots in Israel. They revolted against the authorities, and they were the heroes in the land. They were the great heroes who had resisted the external authorities. And these Maccabeans, these Sadducees say, they're our people. We are the descendants of these Maccabean heroes, and we are carrying on the Messianic age that they inaugurated. So they're not looking for a Messiah, a Christ, to come and to rule over Israel. They're saying the Messianic age is not a person. The Messianic age is an idea. And that idea has come, and we are its custodians. You get a little bit of the feeling that Peter and John were on their turf in every sense of the word. Preaching the name of Jesus, the Messiah. Putting their position, putting their character, and putting their beliefs all together. What we have here with the arrival of these men is a gaggle of demons in robes and sandals. That's who's just shown up. There is no one on the face of the earth that was any more opposed to Jesus than these men. You couldn't create them. You couldn't produce them. They hated Jesus with a passion. And at this spot on the planet, there were no men that were any more powerful. Verse 2 says that these men are greatly annoyed at the apostles' teaching about Jesus' resurrection, and now we can understand why. They are greatly disturbed. This is a firebrand shot into their barn of hay. And they are mad. Verse 3, And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Too late to deal with them today. Somewhere in this temple precinct there were places of incarceration, and they put them away for the night there. But many of those who had heard the word believed. 
And the number of men had come to about 5,000. You can imagine what John and Peter are thinking about as they are spending this night in prison. It's been quite a day. We were just going up to the temple to pray. Going up to the temple to pray, here's this man asking for alms. We lift him up in the name of Jesus. He's healed, and all this crowd gathers, and there's a great response. We're not sure if it's 5,000 total based on chapter 2 and verse 41, or 5,000 additional, but it's probably referring just to men, as few women and even fewer children would have been there, and that's the way they would typically make their counts. These were the heads of their families, and and so these 5,000 had come to trust Christ, or perhaps 8,000, depending on how we figure it, but further evidence that Jesus is alive. He has healed this lame man, and He has poured out His Spirit upon those who are responding in faith What a day it's been. And here they are in prison, in jail. What's going to come the next morning? At verse 5, we enter upon Peter and John's interrogation. Verse 5, On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. We have the prosecutors arriving here. This is a gathering of the 71-member Sanhedrin. There's really no question about that. The Senate and Supreme Court of Israel with jurisdiction in all non-capital offense cases. If a Gentile crossed the barrier in the temple entering into the Jewish section, they could kill him. But other than that, they had to rely upon the Roman authorities to take someone's life. That's why they went to the Romans with Jesus. But, having said that, they have absolute jurisdiction over anybody that's in this area and over the Jews. That's the group that these men are gathering before. They are led by Annas. He's not actually the high priest at this time. He'd been deposed by the Romans in A.D. 15. But he was so powerful, they just called him the high priest anyway. This man was so powerful, the de facto high priest, that he worked it out for not only for him to serve as high priest, essentially the president of Israel, though with more power, he got five of his sons to serve in that position, one of his sons-in-law and one of his grandsons. This was a powerful man. And that son-in-law? Caiaphas. Caiaphas, the one before whom Jesus was tried in an illegal night trial and was killed. That's the people Peter and John are standing before. These men are in a semicircle, seated in their place of meeting here in the temple grounds, and there is Peter and John standing before them, facing this semicircle of 71 of the most powerful men in Israel. And they want answers. Their question comes. By the way, we don't know who John and Alexander are, but if you lived in that day, you did. They were important people. There's there's a whole message right in that. But at any rate, verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now, how do you read that question? Are they looking for information? No. Verse 2, they know. They know exactly what these men are doing. They want to pin down their position. And in some sense, they have a right to do this, even biblically. Deuteronomy 13 says, if there's a miracle that's performed among you, and someone begins to point you to other gods because of this miracle, test the miracle. If it doesn't point to God, if it doesn't point to the worship of Yahweh, then that person is to be prosecuted. Well, that's exactly what Peter wants to do here, to say, we are worshipers of Yahweh. We are followers of the crucified Christ. And he answers this basic question that way. 
by what power or by what name did you do this? Peter's response, verse 8 and following, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, a little foggy about who that is, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. There's Peter, there's John, apparently next to him, this healed man. He's standing there on his two legs because of Jesus. Jesus lives, the one you crucified. In verse 9, we find a very respectful but subtle rebuke. More frankly put, Peter is saying, listen guys, the reason that we're here is because we healed a lame man. You really have a problem with that? I mean, what are you going to say about this? He could stay there if he wanted, but he doesn't. Indeed, as Chrysostom put it, in all fairness, they should have been crowned for their deed and proclaimed benefactors. But rather than staying here on this point, do you have a problem with us healing a man? He moves to the more significant point. The same message that he's preached in chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, he preaches here in verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This is the message. Again, you killed him, God raised him. Now, Peter, as I said, could have stayed in verse 9. I mean, think of it. He's really got an angle here. Listen, we're trying to improve your community. That's all we're doing. We're just trying to help a guy who is lame, and we have the power to do so. And Let's not worry about that, we're, but we're just trying to help out here. But you remember back to Luke chapter 21 and verse 13. You will be brought before kings and governors this will be your opportunity to bear witness. And that is precisely what Peter does. They are not going to knock on Peter's door and say, would you tell us about Jesus? But here with this situation in this event, he takes the opportunity to merge into, yes, a man has been raised, but I want you to know Jesus died. You crucified him. God raised him. So the healing was not an end in itself. It was a platform on which to proclaim Jesus. Verse 11. This Jesus, he continues, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Another firebrand. We have to understand it in its context. Think of who the Sadducees are. Now he quotes from Psalm 118, which we read earlier today. The psalm speaks of the king's vindication by God. There were people that looked at the king like builders look at a bad stone. They set it off to the side. This king's no good. But God in his mercy gave the king a military victory, showing that God's hand was upon him. The very stone everyone had rejected, the king says in this psalm, is now the chief cornerstone. God has done this. It's his mercy. It's marvelous in our eyes. Well, everybody understands that far, but as the Jews began to develop this text and think through it, meditate on it, they did come to the place where they believed it was messianic. That is that this talked about the coming king, the ultimate king, the Messiah, who would be rejected, but would become the choice cornerstone of God. 
Now, they didn't know who that was. They were pretty excited for the guy to come. Most people, not the Sadducees, the Messianic age was already here for them. But for everybody else, they were looking for this Messiah to come, this one that was rejected. Now, think of it here as this country bumpkin from Galilee, this fisherman, untrained, unschooled, uneducated in their ways of thinking, stands in front of these men and says, that text has come true in Christ. And you rejected him. You rejected the cornerstone God sent. You sent him away. You killed him, but God raised him. Jesus is the rejected stone. Indeed, verse 12. He is just turning down the screw here. You killed him. God raised him. God sent him as the chief stone. You rejected him. Verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. Not in the Maccabees, not in the Sadducees who follow in their stead, not in this supposed messianic age that you think is dawn. And really, when you look at it, you think you're the Messiahs. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other Savior at all for anyone is what he's saying, if there's any question. Every other name by which anyone proposes to be saved is a false hope. Jesus is the only Savior there is. He said in John 14, 6, as clearly as language can put it, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Apostle Paul said there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There are other religious teachers. There are other religious books. But there is only one God-man who suffered the penalty of sinners so as to appease the wrath of God against them. Charles Spurgeon, preaching on this passage, said in response, How intolerant is the Christian religion? A hundred lying religions may sleep peaceably in one bed, but wherever the Christian religion goes as the truth, it is like a firebrand. You know, Christian, it's the case that not too many people are going to grump. They're not going to say a whole lot. If you follow your God and permit them to follow their God, And don't ever say anything about it. You do your thing, I'll do mine. Who's going to complain? The rub comes when you say there is only one Savior, and that is my Savior. Now the world takes that second section there of that statement in a way to, to express pride. We know that's not the case. He's my Savior is a statement of utter humility. But there is only one Savior, and He is my Savior. Such exclusive claims are deeply offensive. They're unpopular in a culture that celebrates multiculturalism and pluralism. In one sense of the term, we celebrate those things as well, well, but not in the way the world speaks of them. The idea is that there are many kinds of truth. It's all perspectivalism. It all depends on how you take it and how you see it and how you interpret it. And we come with a message that says it doesn't make a bit of difference how anybody interprets it. It matters what God has said. And yes, we see things from our perspective, but what we've all got to do is see things from God's perspective. That's not a popular message today. 
And I quote C.H. Spurgeon living a long time ago in the 1800s because it wasn't popular in his day. It wasn't popular in the day of Peter and John either. President-elect Obama's speech last Tuesday gave the vision of an America as a place where all faiths share mutual respect and work together to build a better world. How do we hear that? On one level, I say, yes, I can agree with that. There is a sense in which we agree with this statement. Imposed religion is always destructive. All legitimate religious viewpoints are to be respected because we know that only the heart can respond to the gospel of Christ. But I'd say, quickly, they got that idea from us. The Anabaptists talked about religious liberty. They bequeathed it to this land, believing that genuine conversion is a matter of the heart, and only those who are free to exercise their conscience in matters of liberty can truly respond to the salvation that's in Jesus Christ. You can't impose Christianity on anyone. So, yes, we agree with that, and you got that from us. But there's a profound sense in which we cannot conform to that agenda. God's word reveals that there is only one Savior before whom every knee will bow in eternity. This is what God has revealed. To believe anything else is to believe a hell-inspired lie. To believe that everyone is going to the same place, we're all going to be okay, conflicts with the idea that Jesus is the only name by which everyone must be saved. And when you proclaim that message, you are going to offend. I wrote along these lines in our local newspaper some time ago. I received a response from a man who clearly caught what I was saying. I'm going to quote words that he used to describe me, my article. Close-minded, sad in the sense of pathetic, uncompassionate, ignorant, close-minded, use that again, promoting feelings of hate and superiority, unnecessary, uneducated, promoting thoughts of fear and hate for others, creating violence and conflict in a world in need of forgiveness and love. These are direct statements. He wrote at the end, really, Reverend, my letter is not meant to be a condemnation of you. i take a little umbrage with that, but... <laughs> your article or the wonderful work you're doing in our community. My aim was to simply open your mind a bit. Now, I read this because it really strikes at the heart of what our world thinks. To open your mind a bit and to, in turn, encourage you to expand your perspective and look for the compassion and beauty in all of God's people. After all, other cultures brought us beautifully loving people like Gandhi and Buddha and Muhammad and have many wonderful spiritual worldviews like Buddhism, Hinduism, and Islam whose core beliefs center, like Christianity, on love and compassion for all beings. There's a lot I'd like to say. My belief is that love and compassion for all beings is that there are people who are not God's children. And that only as they submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ can they become God's children. And for me to say anything else is unloving and wrong. It comes down to a simple choice. Again, I read this letter because it so epitomizes where people are. 
Chill out, Christians. There's other good things in other religions. We're all kind of going the same direction. So join the masses who want to believe that we're all basically good, that we're all basically saying the same thing, that we're all basically going to the same place, meeting the same God, if there is one. But we're all heading in the same direction. You can go that way. It seems to me that Jesus called that a broad road. And the destination wasn't pretty. You can go one other way. And that is to believe the message of the one man who lives sinlessly, who raised the dead, who rose from the grave, who ascended to the right hand of the Father and promises to come again in power and great glory to judge the living and the dead. Who are you going to believe? The masses on the road to destruction or the Jesus who said, no one comes to the Father except through me? Because no one is the God-man. No one has paid the penalty of sin. No one reigns from heaven's throne but Christ. So between those two choices, I take the narrow road. Count me in with what Jesus said, and that is exactly what Peter is saying here. You are never, I don't believe it's hardly possible for any of us to ever stand in a position that is worse than where Peter's at right now. Thinking of what the Sadducees think about themselves as the Messianic age purveyors, thinking about what they think of themselves as those who control the temple area, knowing that they have the blood of Jesus on their hands, you've got to stand before these people and say, listen, I've helped a guy here. Or you've got to say Jesus is the only name by which we must be saved, and he stands up and delivers a home run. He knew He was going to be popular with the Sanhedrin or approved by Jesus. And for Peter, there was no choice. The man who could not even admit to Caiaphas' slave girl that he knew Jesus now stands before Caiaphas seated at the center of that semicircle of the most powerful men in Israel. And he says, there is one name by which we must be saved. Just one, Jesus. It was quite a speech, and it put the Sanhedrin on their heels. We see their response beginning at verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. It wasn't every day a fisherman showed up at the Sanhedrin and told them what was up. You know, we've seen guys like this before, they're thinking. The boldness, the understanding of Scripture and how it applies, this messianic idea, the healings. They've been with Jesus. There's no two ways about that. That's what discipleship relationships are. Disciples pick up the characteristics of their discipler. These men have been with Jesus seemed like they'd been with Jesus. In fact, they'd been with Jesus a whole lot more recently than these rulers would ever care to know. As through 40 days of resurrection appearances, he had taught them. Yeah, they'd been with Jesus. They were his disciples. But seeing the man, verse 14, who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. 
Stott put it, they could not deny it and they would not acknowledge it. So they're really in a hard bind here. They're in chains between this, in this dilemma. And there's an embarrassed silence. The only recourse is to huddle up and come up with a good play for third and long. And so they send them out of there. Verse 15. When they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. They desperately want to repudiate the miracle, but they simply cannot do so. They probably had all walked past this man routinely. Everyone knew him. And there he stood, whole on his own two feet, we see again, just in a sideline, the nature of biblical miracles. Take it in, consider it, we won't say much of it. The nature of biblical miracles. Public and irrefutable. Public and irrefutable. This man had been healed by some power. But in order, verse 17, that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them in and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Which is to say, they took a bucket and they stood in the way of a tsunami. You're going to quit talking about him. They're delusional. They think they can squelch the authority and the power of the reigning Christ, and they foolishly think they've silenced these apostles. Peter's response, verse 19, But Peter and John answered, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Those are gracious words. He could have put it a lot harder than that. For we, verse 20, cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Peter gently informs them that his orders come from a higher throne. Not from a council of 71 men ruled by a foreign princeps in Rome, but from the eternal Lord of the universe. God commands us to obey our ruling authorities. Peter himself will write this in his first epistle. You need to respect and honor those officials that God has placed over you. But there's a place where that ends. It ends when they begin to walk on God's turf. And Peter says, that's what's happening here. I'm not going to listen to you. And this is really filled with integrity. He could just say, yeah, okay, you know, nod or just ignore them and be silent and walk out and go back to preaching Christ. But no, he looks them in the eye and says, I'm not going to do what you've said. To paraphrase Chrysostom, if the apostles were lying, they should have been corrected. If they were telling the truth, they should have been heeded. The Sanhedrin shows that they are the ones in chains. So, this simple fisherman... Not so simple because he's been with Jesus, but you know what I mean. This simple fisherman stands up to them and says, this is the way that it is. And when they had further threatened them, verse 21, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. No one could say a thing. All they can do at this point is threaten them. 
As with Jesus, the crowd serves as a buffer to the Sanhedrin's true intentions. The people, far wiser than these educated sophisticates, could see plainly that God had wrought a wonderful miracle through these men, and they rejoice. And so the Sanhedrin is slow to mess with that enthusiasm. They are a minority. And should the majority come against them, there's going to be trouble. And they're they're slow then to mess with this enthusiasm on this day, and they let them go. For now, a stern warning they trust will be all that's needed to intimidate these people into compliance. Perhaps these unschooled disciples will cower as well, like everyone else did in front of them. But as I said, they're the bucket trying to stop the tsunami. What we find in this narrative is so important for us. We must come to an understanding of the persistence of resistance. The persistence of resistance. The gospel of Jesus Christ, let's understand it, will be rejected and Jesus' followers persecuted until Jesus returns in power and glory. Now there are Christian churches, we use the word generically at least, there are Christian churches today who are striving to come up with a message that is not offensive. To preach a gospel that does not offend people. When a church is preaching a gospel that does not offend, that church is not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're preaching some other gospel. People do not want to hear that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior, that I don't run my own show, that I must submit to Him, that my sins have offended an angry God, and that I am deserving fully of judgment unless someone intervenes. This is not a message that's going to be received and welcomed by the masses. It's offensive. There will be a persistence of resistance until Jesus returns. We should be aware of this. That doesn't mean that we should become obnoxious and mean-spirited and try to offend before we get offended. But it means that we should never be shocked when people resist the gospel of Christ. These images that you've seen before you here today of persecution in Orissa, this is normal. And it's evidence again that Jesus Christ is alive. There is an active demonic resistance to the power of Christ. Because in its reality and truth, it is not a power that runs by intimidating and harming and killing. It is a power that wins hearts through love. It will always be resisted. And secondly, in light of this narrative, is the reminder again of our calling to labor in the teeth of this resistance as we minister the gospel of Jesus to a world that rejects him until Jesus calls us home. Now, that's going to take courage because there will be rejection and there will be ridicule. We aren't to get mean-spirited and ugly and nasty with people, but we need to put ourselves out as a sacrificial lamb and proclaim the message that some people are going to cut down and despise. We need courage. We sung that courage to one another today, didn't we? Be strong in the Lord and be of good courage. We need that courage because of Christ. 
in the light of Christ and who he is. But where does that courage come from for Peter? He would not admit he knew Christ to this girl, this servant, this maid in Caiaphas' house. What happened? Where does this courage come from? Peter has come to the full conviction that Jesus Christ is alive. He's come to the full conviction that Jesus Christ is reigning at the Father's right hand. He is the Lord of the universe. I'll go anywhere and tell anyone the truth. Because Christ is the authority, not the Sanhedrin. This temple is God's house, not their house. And this earth is the Lord's earth, not anyone else's. We respect the governing authorities. We work within the cultures and the context and the governments of the peoples of this world, but we do not ever back away from the fact that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. We proclaim it honestly, fairly, courageously. But we've got to proclaim it, secondly, with effort. This is our calling, not only to have courage, but to put forward effort. Our culture battles against this idea. And it battles against us through the numbing effects of sloth and ease and acceptance. We can put it in neutral in this culture and live an okay life without offending a lot of people. And that is a temptation for me as it is for you. We rub shoulders with people at work, with neighbors, with family members. We rub shoulders, some of us in school, with unbelievers every day. It's going to take effort to stand up, courage to find opportunities to proclaim the message of Christ. And it is going to take, let me say thirdly and finally, spirit-filling. How does that come? Well, that in itself is a great question. Let me just say and assume what I think the Bible teaches is that spirit-filling does not come through some massive event in our life some unique happenstance, or following through certain rules to bring the Spirit filling upon us. Spirit filling comes when our minds, our thoughts, our affections are so saturated in Jesus Christ that we naturally speak for Him because we love Him. Because we see all of life as being lived under His Lordship and His reign and His rule. We're not troubled by the things a lot of people are troubled by. We don't love the things a lot of people love. We don't think about life the way a lot of people think about life because our mind is being transformed and renewed by Jesus Christ in conformity to who He is. But as I am filled with the Spirit of God, as I am characterized by the Spirit of Jesus in my life, proclaiming His name, His authority, His love, and His grace should come more and more naturally. I don't mean by that that we wait till it comes naturally. We need courage and we need to put forward effort. But what I mean is that we should focus our thoughts so on Christ and see life so from His perspective as the reigning Savior and coming King that we think about everything under the light of Jesus Christ, our Savior and the Lord. There will be a persistence of resistance, but there is a calling to filling. The filling of the Spirit of God by whom we proclaim Christ crucified, risen, and coming again for the salvation of lost souls, including ours. Let's bow together for prayer. As the house of the Lord and from the house of the Lord, we, Father, bless your name. 
as the house of the Lord built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and heeding and listening to and following the risen Christ, we give you thanks and bless your name for the salvation that is in him. There may be those among us here today who do not know Christ as Savior, who have not been freed from their sins, who have not come to embrace Peter's message that we have crucified him in some sense, but that he's risen and that he will forgive. God, I pray that you will bring humility and yieldedness to the heart of one who is resisting salvation in Christ today. Bring to them salvation. May they respond. For those of us who know you as Savior, we bow in thanksgiving. We admit our sin of being so uncourageous and so lethargic and apathetic in our witness for Christ. But I pray, Father, that you will open opportunities for us, as you did for Peter and John, not opportunity that they sought, but one that was clearly before them, and that you would permit us to walk through that door of opportunity and to proclaim Jesus Christ, his name, him, as the only one through whom we must be saved. Grant us that privilege, grant us that courage, and may souls come to know Christ because of our witness. We bow and give you thanks for that salvation. In the name of our Savior we pray. Amen.